The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. And I'm thrilled that we have, as usual, for International Crossroads, our guest co-host. Although, after over a year, it's not really a guest. He's not really a guest anymore. He's like a regular. Michael Cohen. Michael, welcome today. Good, good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Stephen. It's good morning, Michael. Good morning. It's great to be back with you both. Glad you're joining us. Uh, I know that today we plan to talk about trade policies, international trade policies, and the impact that uh, will probably be forthcoming as a result of some of the uh, President Trump's policies and decisions in terms of uh, where we go from here. But there's a couple of things that we wanted to talk about at the uh, at the lead, and that would be a loop back to some of the U.S. Supreme Court decisions because, as our listeners know, we have made a point of reviewing high court decisions, and there's been a couple of decisions uh, recently, one specifically involving the Asian-American rock band, The Slants. And, Michael, I wanted to uh, address that issue first, if we can. Sure, Stephen. It's, uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court's in that mode where decisions are starting to roll out now, and a number of important ones, uh, to say the least, are on the docket, um, including some that tend to and stand to fundamentally change the American electorate in notable ways. Um, And the one uh, court case that you're talking about, Stephen, kind of has to do with uh, commercial trademark policy and First Amendment issues. That's not very usual, is it, Michael? We see the intersection of commercial trade and constitutional free speech. That that seems like a a relatively, I don't want to say novel, but we don't see cases on that very often, do we? Not in this context, Mitch. Uh, The Lanham Act in the United States is the fundamental trademark statute um, and, um, and false advertising statute, if you will. And generally speaking... Uh, when advertising is false, uh, commercial speech is entitled to protection under the, under the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. But that con- that protection is not absolute. It 
the Constitution does not reach into false speech, just like it does not reach into certain other types of speech um, in the defamation arena or slander arena uh, over time where there have been uh, other carve-outs uh, in speech as well. So generally speaking, the, the Lanham Act's uh, prohibition on false and misleading advertising has really never intersected at all with the First Amendment's uh, permission of speech because false commercial speech is not protected under um, the U.S. Constitution. Here we're talking about um, tra trademark rights or um, and, and whether or not you can tra trademark you know, speech that would be uh, disparaging and um, viewed in those ways. And that is not something that uh, happens very often. Yeah, you know, uh, Michael, just to loop back, we, we raised this case when we talked about the disparagement clause and, as you indicated, the First Amendment. Uh, the holding or the upshot from this ruling was that the, the, the disparagement clause violates the First Amendment's free speech clause. And by way of background, this was a case in which a, a rock band using the name The Slants, I think, uh, sought trademark protection or trademark rights, and then they were faced with a ban initially. Is that right? That's exactly right, um, Stephen. And, and just to, if I might share a little added context there, uh, not, not only did you set up the facts in your brilliantly succinct way, getting right to the heart of it, um, but the slants um, are an Asian band, and they uh, attempted to trademark their name, um, which uh, the, the name slants can be viewed as uh, by, by many as a disparaging name in the Asian community. And this Asian band took the name in order to take back the term. And, and that's kind of something that's happening in American speech culture. Uh, names that were generally used in a derogatory way or a disparaging way against groups for race or religion or those types of things, many of those uh, folks in that race or religion living in our country are grabbing back the name, taking it back into their own community to take the sting off of it. If, if, if people adopt it themselves in some way, it, it becomes you know, something that other people really can't use uh, to, to, to insult them, and, uh, so to speak. And I think it's actually a fascinating um, uh, de development. And really, when you think about it, something that our free speech clause probably ne never really contemplated in any uh, dimension, and that's the whole point of the free speech clause, is to not contemplate all of those things in those dimensions, but to allow expression uh, to flourish in, in ways that no one could ever conceive. And here this rock band was grabbing at this disparaging name for its own community to take it back and take it public and take all the sting out of it, um, and it couldn't get protection for it because of the because of the Lanham Act's uh, prohibition and disparagement clause. You, you know, Michael, that that was the exact position of the ACLU. I read some of their uh, opinions, and this notion of taking back the name is really the argument that the ACLU uh, really put forth. Also, well, Stephen and Michael, let me jump in for just a second because Michael, the the higher profile question that came up 
was the, the trademark and trade dress and trade use of sports team names that for Native Americans, a number of these teams were also were named uh, and for, it's been for quite some time. They thought they were using terms that they found offensive and derogatory. It's really the flip side of it. I mean, they want to take them back, but essentially take them away. Do you think this case affects that? It, it almost, I mean, I'm having a hard time figuring out how you bridge those two, because they seem to be coming from 180 degrees opposite ends of the question. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, Mitch? I, I mean, they, they are, you know, uh, I, to, to use a case that is routinely in the news, uh, it would be the, the Washington, D.C. football team, the Washington Redskins. Uh, uh, and uh, the, 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 on the one hand, uh, you know, Native Americans have been protesting the use of the name Redskins by the Washington football team for uh, many, many, many years now. There has been a lot of litigation over it, and that's a team. That, you know, that's 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 a group on the outside, not not a team taking back the name, right? But but a team on the outside that believes the. The football mascot, the Redskins, is a disparaging name to Native Americans, and it shouldn't be shouldn't be used. And has been trying to enjoin it. Um, it's the exact opposite, as you described, Mitch. But really, I think the same First Amendment principles are going to apply. the The First Amendment doesn't discriminate in a lot, you know, a lot of intent and expression. It's not supposed to. Expression is supposed to mean something for its own sake. And the rest of the world is supposed to benefit or not by having the ability to speak, the ability to express. Um, and I think many of the same principles are going to apply. The, 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 the reason that the slants may have to take back that name and trademark it is not going to be distinguished, I don't think, by courts in the application of the First Amendment to the ability to trademark a potentially disparaging um, uh, name um, and the principles of the clash between the, the First Amendment and the Lanham Act in that regard will not be viewed subjectively. I think they'll be fairly black letter. Well, I think it's just fascinating because here, here you have a, a ruling by the court that clearly a, a helps the argument for the slants and yet at the very same time it sounds like, in the long run, may diminish the argument for Native Americans blocking the use of sports mascots and sport team names. And, and so I guess that's what always makes constitutional law so fascinating, that one decision, although it seems clear on its face, and the way you explain it makes perfectly good sense, but I guess those who are arguing the other side on the Washington Redskins case are going to say, wait a minute, we won? No, we didn't. <laughs> Exactly. And look, in fairness to the Redskins, there are likely plenty of people who say the intent there is, is far from disparaging Native Americans. It, 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 you know, they're embracing the heroics and the nobility of Native Americans. They've chose it as the name to inspire their sports franchise. You know, every time those folks go out on the field, they are happy to put, put on the, the Native American logo, the chief, the nobility, the spirit, the, the warrior spirit invo involved in all of that is where we draw competitive inspiration. Uh, the point being that there are all sides of intent and all sides of impact 
that occur through speech. And that's why we protect it. That's why we protect it. We protect it for the expression and the impact to occur and not to suppress it. And, uh, you know, you're 100% right, Mitch. All speech is going to have all sides of those things. And I think what the courts are really saying is, true to the purposes of protecting speech in America, we're, we're not going to draw lines uh, around the subjectivity of, of those things. But in the, uh, we're going to draw lines around what the Constitution attempts to protect itself. And in this uh, era, it's, all, it's nice to see courts talking about our ability uh, to speak. It, it really is. Well, Michael and Mitch, let's set the table for our, our next topic, which is going to be the international trade topic and implications that are connected with uh, new policies that are set out by President Trump, where in essence uh, he has ostensibly cut off uh, significant trade with other countries, uh, because we do want to talk about that topic, uh, both pros and cons, if in fact there are any pros, of course we want to look and speak about the impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you, you, go ahead. I can hear somebody trying to break in. Well, I was going to say, you know, what will come back to the break after about 45 seconds from now, you know, I was fascinated and I want to start, Michael, when we come back to talk about, you know, the trade history of the United States really goes back to the, the 1930s for the current era. And so I'll I'll be interested in kind of wrapping from that all the way up to where you think we are now. So, Stephen, right. I'll turn it back to you. Sure, let's do that. Um, we're going to continue our discussion and actually introduce the topic of international trade. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're going out on a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. <music> Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, this is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. 
Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are discussing U.S. trade history and policy. And as our listeners probably know, in past shows, we've talked about the Trans-Pacific Trade Alliance and that topic and NAFTA. We're joined by Professor Michael Cohen today. And Michael, let's pick up with a little bit of U.S. trade history, as Mitch had suggested before the break. Yeah, sure. and Mike, before you jump in there, I, I was just I was fascinated in getting ready for today's show that if you, you really this modern era goes back to about the nineteen thirties when President Roosevelt brought one of the first major tariff acts and that it dropped uh, it dropped tariffs by sixty percent and they've they've stayed at the current level almost since then, you know, under ten percent. So it goes right through GATT, which we heard about for years, and I didn't realize that goes back to the 1940s. I thought that was current, but it's 1940s, and then Trade Acts from 1974, and then the WTO. And so then, you know, here we are with TPP and NAFTA. So, and yet it's all kept those trade barriers pretty low. So bring us up to date with what do you think's happening now? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it is fascinating, Mitch. It's such an insightful point to start with in so many ways because it allows us to sort of jump off uh, for American trade policy in its two cornerstones philosophically that have existed, as you point out, Mitch, since the you know really early 20th century. The the the, the as we started to evolve from. Uh, the, the Industrial Revolution, and, and now here we are in the 21st century, uh, you know, evolving from and into uh, what I will call um, a technology age to, to the full computer age. And it's just, uh, what, what an enormous trip. And in those hundred years, uh, you know, the cornerstones of American trade policy have not varied between pol- politics, administrations, or decades, and they've just essentially been two things, and and they both come from our nation's history, not not from great thinking. Uh, uh, and I don't mean that it's not great thinking that we have these 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 trade cornerstones I'm about to talk about, but uh, that uh, instead 
they evolved organically through who we are as a, as a nation. The first is that we're a market. We're an open market. The United States cornerstone principle has been that the more folks who compete, the more folks uh, who are here to invent, the more innovation that occurs, the more um, domestic product uh, is churned, the more uh, domestic growth is churned, um, and the, you know the more jobs that that come with that. Um, but more, you know, and equally important. The, the buying power of the American consumer grows. There's more to buy for that American consumer on the shelves. And, and we see that in this nation. And look, I mean, I, I'll tell you, folks, I, I mean, I know that we have struggles and challenges and problems to confront. But, but if you go in, in, into a Walmart store in you know, rural areas in, in America... The, the, the uh, things that are on the shelves, the opportunity to buy, what you have in front of you is unparalleled anywhere in the world. It's extraordinary. Uh, the, 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 the breadth and scope of goods and services that are available to the American consuming public. And a cornerstone of that policy has always come from the fact that we were born from uh, an, an imperialized people, people who were exploited, people who were part of a mercantile system where the, the British Empire was, in essence, extracting uh, f- from America. And we, we, we in, far, in part, fought a, a war for freedom to control our own economic fate and have always believed in that open market principle for our market, for here in the Americas. And, Michael, is it fair to say that from a geopolitical standpoint, because we're talking about the the history of the trade origin of the country, but that during this boom time of the United States from the 30s until now, from a geopolitical standpoint, we were really a proof in point that that open trade was allowing us to prosper while we looked at competing markets, primarily Russia initially and China now, who are exactly the opposite. They were they were regulated and government owned and government controlled trade uh, uh, markets and trade, and so there it was such a stark difference, right? Stark, stark difference, difference. And a very different system. And I you know I don't mean it in a way that criticizes other markets who have different systems. I mean in many ways. What the, the nationalist market in China has just worked for China so well for it over the past years. I have no idea how well it will work for it in the future, but for China, it works. Whatever, I don't know what works in the Soviet Union. I think they, they're still trying to figure that, that out, and hopefully some, someday will. But for us here, Mitch, you are right. That is what has worked. It has been our case in point. And it not only allows us to flourish in those ways we just discussed, but we attract people. We attract people from around the world. We attract engineers from around the world. We, we, we attract physicists from around the world. We attract people who push technologies and innovation and thought forward. They come here for that reason. And we have benefited from that tremendously over the years. The exit that uh, of the German physicists and you know in the 1930s from Hitler's policies, uh, we we benefited from them. The, Einstein wound up here in America, teaching here at universities in America, not not in not in not in Germany, his, his native land. You know, Michael, I think one of the things that comes uh, up 
right away with me is the platform idea, the fact that we have historically created platforms and been a welcoming nation in terms of fostering education and academics. So I'm glad to hear you raise that point. Um, hit cornerstone number two so we can round out the two cornerstones. Sure. By the way, that was a great point, Stephen. Um, I love the way you described many of the things that have emerged in, in America's platforms, and it's a really fundamental and correct, in my view, correct way to view that. Cornerstone number two is this. For good, bad, or indifferent, the world went to war twice. The world went to war twice. And we call those World War One and World War Two. In each case, America ended up, whether it wanted it or not, it ended up in a position of being stronger, more global, and in position of repairing the world, helping it heal. And we, our role in the world expanded dramatically. Europe was devastated by both of those world wars, and after both of those world wars, America stepped in and helped. For totally different reasons, America, uh, after World War II, had a substantial role in rebuilding Asia, and particularly Japan, which is now you know, one of the largest economies in, in, in the world, from, from its own building, not, not from anything the the United States did, although we did help uh, shift the, the direction there after World War II. And we had a, a, a different role to play in the world after both of those instances and our own multinationals became important to our own market and their ability to compete around the world, their ability to interact in the Middle East, in Asia, in Europe, the ability for our oil and gas development and research, our energy companies to compete around the world, to export our brands and consumer goods, and critically important, our agricultural sector started to consistently boom, consistently boom after World War II because we became the nation that had the greatest ability to feed the world and export food. And what we got in return for that were imports of other things like steel, etc. We kept tariffs low, Mitch, to those 1930s levels and other stuff came in on those low tariffs so we could export and become the leading exporter of agricultural products around the world. And we have always maintained that crown share and we take it for granted but as you go across this nation and you see how big agriculture is and the agricultural industry is in this nation, from companies like Archer Daniels Midland to Monterey County's own farms that are doing $7 billion of strawberries a year, $7 billion of strawberries a year from one California county. This is so big like, business. So as you talk about that, you know, it, it just, I almost can, I, I visualize this, that our, our marketplace became the world. So this concept of benefiting America, it really was our benefit to both buy and sell on a global marketplace. And for the most part, what I find fascinating is you pointed out that that wasn't a political issue. That was just an economic issue. It was an economic outgrowth. And, 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 and it's been a two-way street. So yes, we're an open market. We believe in that. 
and we and and we do it in and and we want other markets to be open so that our own multinationals can 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 expand and grow that has been the two cornerstones of american trade policy across politicians across political parties across economic theorists and 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 and, and consistent in certain sectors, in certain sectors, we, we you know people have said oh, yes, we've waffled. We waffle in energy. We waffle here. We waffle there. But philosophically, in a global market perspective, we have not wavered. We believe in free trade. We believe in open markets. So the re- so you've been traveling since the recent changes in TPP and discussions about NAFTA, and I guess the biggest change you talked about when you were last on the show was that as we've as the current administration has clearly redirected those policies China who we really haven't paid much attention to except for buying their goods as you say in Walmart and virtually every other retail establishment has stepped in and so tell us a little about what you're seeing from that shift yeah so th- th- this has been the the this is uh, our third show uh, on this topic and and first uh, because the the Trump administration ran on a platform that uh, did mark a um, historic century old century one hundred year shift in American trade policy, and it was to return to protectionism, to return to protectionism, and, and arguably we were never protectionist. Um, but but uh, but all that all that said, um, we, we've been observing together, the three of us, how this plays out. Stage one was this. The United States had led something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that was a trade pact amongst all of the Pacific Rim from North Asia to South Asia and all of the Pacific Rim through South America and North America. So think Canada all the way down to Chile on the uh, Pacific coast of the Americas. And Thailand and, and, and Malaysia, all the way through South Korea um, on the Pacific Rim. And the, the reason for that was to bring people together and create open markets that would be uh, structured in a way that fit our cornerstones and principles and ones that we hoped they shared. And it was a good partnership, and people were excited about it, and it was starting to take off. Trump withdrew. Trump withdrew. China stepped in. They well, you know, our- Michael, Mitch invited you to talk about China, and, and you've just referenced that President Trump withdrew, giving China an opportunity to fill a gap. Right. And, and I think that's there's no way to deny that. Uh, it looks as though that is the result, that China will take advantage of this gap and, and really uh, increase import-export uh, activity. Uh, very likely to the detriment of the country. I mean, we can bat that around also. Uh, I was hoping to return to this idea of the open market and protectionism, because as you were recounting the cornerstones, I thought that open market and protectionism can actually live together as one in the same room, that they're not necessarily incongruous ideas. So I I wanted to kind of tease that one and, and maybe invite you to return to it when we get back from the break and then continue our discussion on global market implications. Sure, sure. And Stephen, after we come from the break, I think we're going to probably 
have to talk a little about the travel ban, which also changed this week as it impacts this idea of our... Oh, well, well, that's a good point. Trees. Inextricably tied, I think, to the trade issue. Yes, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about trade, trade markets, and the global market. We'll continue our discussion when we come back from this short break. Please don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you are just joining us, our topic today has been trade and global markets, and we're joined by Professor Michael Cohen. And Michael, let's pick back up with uh, where we left off. We were talking, you were introducing uh, China, and then it segued into uh, Europe. Yeah, and I, you know, how 
you you both are so wonderful with me because I often um, in my professor's hat probably stray. So Stephen, I think you were tying me back in that gifted way you always do to um, this notion of um, open markets and protectionism and whether they can coexist. And I just want to start right there, if I may, and just say, of course they can. Uh, and in fact, every national market needs some form to protect itself. And uh, th that protectionism is for its own goals and the things that it values. But it has to be balanced with um, uh, uh, th that goal of open market. And, and that's what trade talks are about. That, that's really what trade negotiations around the world are about. That's why people engage in things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, why people engage in things like NAFTA. They bring all those things to bear, and they carefully balance those things and negotiate those things. Um, but, but withdrawing from those things doesn't give you the ability to do that. And I think that's when I mark a, a change in, in U.S. policy, that's the biggest fundamental change is, is our withdrawal from the world of trade negotiation. Not so much that we may want to rebalance things. Rebalancing is always something that goes on in world trade. Withdrawal from trade packs from the United States is a historic reversal of direction. We've withdrawn from TPP. We have threatened NAFTA to the point where it is such an unstable relationship already that our two partners, Mexico and Canada, are already turning to other shores for their stability, regardless of what happens to the trade pack. And the third leg here has been Europe. Europe arguably has been our most important trade partner for the United States' entire history. Europe has been our most important trade partner for the entire history of this nation. European markets themselves have evolved in extraordinarily mature ways that we should be watching and learning from, not turning away from. The European elections over the past month have shown a, a, a sophistication amongst their populations and electorate that is far beyond anything that we have seen here in the United States. Their, their rejection of, of, of passionate nationalist movements that would unwind the, the things that they have valued together has, has, has to me shown even more reason why we need to be paying attention to Europe rather than walking away from it. And I'm a, I, you know, what, what I will describe now is that the EU tour of this administration after its last trip to the Middle East, almost as an afterthought to swing through and meet European leaders, was an utter disaster. President Trump attacked Germany, which is the most important market in Europe, along with France and the United Kingdom. And, and the United Kingdom is already uh, withdrawing itself and, 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 and having some impact there. But you know, France and, 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 and Germany together are cornerstones of European market economy. The president attacked um, uh, Germany, I mean, literally attacked it. I, I just, just flat out at, uh, attacked it. Uh, the, the uh, you know, a German chancellor's reaction was, um, well, we can't depend on the U.S. anymore. It's time to control our own fate. And I believe all nations should try to control their own fate. But um, what she was saying, in no uncertain terms, is that we will no longer be interdependent in trade and economy with America. 
Uh, Trump was attacking, of course, once again, this trade, de- the notion of trade deficit. We have a $64 billion trade deficit with Germany. But if you talk to economists, trade deficits don't mean anything. That simply means that American consumers buy an awful lot of German goods. And that's because we have 400 million people here. Trade what, deficit what is not a way to measure things. What, what I would measure things by are the 700,000 jobs in America, 700,000 jobs in America that German companies create and employ people here. The BMW plants in the United States and the Mercedes plants in the United States are amongst the largest in the automotive industry, period. BMW has a plant in Spartansburg, South Carolina that produces and exports more automobiles in the United States and from the United States than any single auto plant in this nation, including any single GM or Ford plant. Trump himself, by the way, paid $450,000 for a Mercedes, which in our, you know, in Monterey County isn't a whole, whole lot of money given our car auctions, but still it's a pretty hefty <laughs> figure. Um, you know, look at the German economy itself. It's created 4.5 million jobs over the past six years, and it's at full employment. We want to be interdependent and working cooperatively with those kinds of economies that share our values of open markets and exports and participate with each other. Mike, let me ask you on the participant yeah. part, because uh, many of us don't understand the role of things like the WTO. And it generally works in the shadows and in the background, and, and we just think we don't know what it is and we don't know what it does. But is it fair to say that we should be watching the discussions and the, the trade negotiations and the trade agreements that come out of the WTO or is that just too narrow of a focus? I think it's too narrow. I, the, the WTO is in some ways a disaster for a developed nation. The, the WTO's goal is to help developing nations uh, emerge into developed economies. Um, but it's been misused, honestly, Mitch. And I, I, you know, real criticism of China is that China is, ki- is still consil- considered a, de- a quote-unquote developing nation under the WTO, and, and it's developed. That, that's ridiculous. And so the, the WTO does nothing, in my view, other than you know, create artificial and political trade imbalances by protection, pr- protecting, quote-unquote, developing economies that are, that are now developed. And, 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 and so I, I wouldn't pay a- attention to that. But I would pay attention to trade pacts uh, you know things like TPP, things like NAFTA, things um, like like, uh, like uh, and, and where nations uh, move around in there. So let's just talk about that for two seconds, right? We withdraw from the TPP. China moves in. We strain NAFTA, and uh, what happens is Canada and Mexico become leaders of the new TPP with Chile and Peru and China and all of the Pacific Rim nations and start to look elsewhere. We strain Europe. We, stra- we strain Europe, and 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 Europe says um, uh, Europe comes along, and uh, you know this is one of the most telling economic comments. The the European uh, the Europeans like us have have economic arms to their governments. And one quote that came out of one was that if peace and prosperity are the object of the global economic order, the Trump administration offers neither. To Europeans. Immediately after Trump's tour, China accelerates 
its planned summit with European leaders. It goes to Europe. It meets with European economic leaders. They form a quote-unquote new access of economic power. And it's not perfect. China and Europe have exactly some of the same trade issues that the Americas and Europe have. But China has now directly invested, increased its direct investments in, in Europe by 77% and invested $35 billion in the European economy last year. And on the very day that Trump backs out of the Paris Accords, backs out of the Paris Accords, which itself, by the way, is troubling only because it creates instability in U.S. policy. When we commit to things, we have to stay there. We don't just turn them around a year later because then nobody will ever commit to anything with us. But putting all that aside, the day that we withdraw from the Paris Accords, which have to do with the use of fossil fuels, China voluntarily announces its own compliance and enters into a pact with Europe that gets China to move away from fossil fuels, which is going to happen anyway. This is the stupidest thing in the world. You know, it, it, reversing and coming out of these climate accords isn't going to put fossil fuels back on the map. People are moving away from fossil fuels, not because, thank goodness, it's actually, there's an economic driver to it. It's not altruism. It's because other forms of energy are cheaper. <laughs> and, and as long as you can buy other forms of energy cheaper, you're not going to use fossil fuels. That's not coming back. Coal mining jobs aren't coming back in this nation. Natural gas is cheap. Coal is dead. It's not going to change. There's an economic reason for that. It doesn't have anything to do with the EPA, and, it doesn't have, and it's nothing Trump can do anything about. One more thing I just want to lay on the table. Japan is now, right now, negotiating a historic trade pact, trade pact with the European Union. Together, Japan and the European Union are more than a quarter of the global economy. That pact is going to do something historically important. It's going to lower tariffs for Japanese electronics into the European Union, which is what Japan wants. And it's going to lower tariffs into Japan for European agriculture, where we currently have a massive advantage. We have pulled out of the TPP the tariffs that we're going to apply to American agricultural exports into Japan are astronomical because we pulled out. We have just ceded our agricultural exports into Japan to Europe. That's, Mitch, the things that we ought to be looking at. We have just, the Trump administration's policies in just less than a year have given almost 100% of our agricultural economy's exports to one of the leading nations in the world to another continental economic rival in the European Union, or created a rival in the European Union where one did not exist. Michael, These let me jump kinds in. Of things matter. Let me jump in. Let me jump in a moment, Michael, and just ask you about because you started by talking about the European tour and Chancellor Merkel's reaction, and I think you've captured all of that accurately. There's no doubt, really, in my mind that. Uh, it was vinegar instead of honey that was used, to borrow a phrase. Um, and I wonder about whether or not this is indelible in terms of um, its impact. But a question I had was, as you look at the history of world trade, and I'm going to loop back to the cornerstone idea, do you think the European markets, and if you look at Germany, 
are their cornerstones in harmony with our cornerstones? They have uh, historically been very different, uh, even amongst the nations. Uh, France has uh, uh, always been much closer to our own heart. Germany has behaved a little bit differently. But since World War II, Stephen, uh, the European Union, and particularly really since the early 50s, um, uh, the European Union's uh, cornerstones have been directly in line with ours, and they haven't wavered. And in many ways... These last elections, although phrased in political terms, were about that. They were basically, uh, these elections in Europe were about the fact that, hey, we are economically tied together in a global way. Do we benefit that from that or not? And, and Marine Le Pen and the, the, the Netherlands guy and you know, all of the nationalist movements were very much about, no, we're not benefiting. And the population across Europe resoundingly rejected that notion. They said we are better together than we are apart. And yeah, so, was, the, so the open market, the open market theme, and the right. idea of fostering open market philosophies was quite clearly uh, one of the uh, accepted uh, policies and mantras in the European markets. That's right. In the United States, for some reason, you know, a, 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 an administration that you know, is, is, is illiterate when it comes to world trade policy has made globalization a bad word. And in Europe, globalization is a good word, and they're about to benefit for, from it at our expense. So, Michael, if you had to highlight the top things, you've, you've talked about Japan and China and their moves as we have our last minute here on the show. For those of us who are just trying to figure out how to navigate watching this, particularly if we're not economists and we're not globalists in our own day-to-day life, what would you focus on? What would you tell us to be watching in the next six months, let's say? Jobs. Okay. Jobs. You know, you really want to look at the impact on whether or not our withdrawal is going to help us. Let's look at jobs and let's look at our sectors and let's look at whether or not they're growing. And I'm not talking about the financial markets. Wall Street is so completely disconnected and unrelated to anything that matters in the world. It, 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 you know, it, it, is, it is run by, it, 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 I think we've seen over and over and over again, the most criminal of conduct come out of the financial markets that I, 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 I can barely talk about them with a straight face, but watch real American jobs, okay. agriculture, auto manufacturing, technology. Let's watch where our goods are going and let's watch what's coming in. All right. Well, on that note, you've probably set us up for yet another show when we have you back for International Crossroads. Michael, thank you again. This has been, as always, uh, illuminating and challenging and giving us some things to watch. Uh, Stephen, another great show. Uh, Let me tell everybody, as we do each week, you can hear an archived version of today's show on voiceamerica.com business channel. You can also hear it on wagnerandwinnick.com. We remind you each week as we close the show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America Business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 